join Derek and Yvonne Mulligan, your enthusiastic hosts on The Hipstorians, as we whiz back and forth through time and covering the stories that have shaped our world. With listeners spanning across 39 countries, this compelling podcast will bridge the past and the present in an entertaining, accessible and lively way. Tomorrow may be a mystery, but on The Hipstorians, everything else is history. We explore historical events through interviews with world-renowned authors and historians, deep diving into different eras and uncovering hidden gems. Whether you're a history aficionado or a curious newcomer, we offer something for everyone. So subscribe today to embark on your time-traveling adventure with us, the Hipstorians. Connect with a community that shares your passion for the past and stay tuned for engaging interviews, enlightening discussions and a fresh take on history. So grab that cuppa, get comfortable. Here we go. Well, hello, Hipstorians. Welcome to another episode with myself, Derek and Yvonne. We're going to take you on a rather strange trip, you could say, this week. We're going to be speaking about the Padre. This is ex-priest, I will say that, uh, who went to work for the Irish Republican Army. And Jennifer O'Leary, uh, award-winning journalist with the BBC and was the investigative reporter on the series uh, The Troubles Secret History. And Jennifer had exclusive access to Father Patrick Ryan. And I think, you know, we're all very privileged for the fact that he, you know, Jennifer made the space available for him to give his story and how he felt and what a complex character the Padre is. So on that note, we shall welcome Jennifer O'Leary to the Hipstorians podcast. Hello. Thank you so much. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, Derek. Hi, Yvonne. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. I suppose to start us off, like you're you're in the right place and the right position, obviously, to write about all things the troubles. Uh, you'd be very familiar with the back streets, I'm sure, at this point. It was probably through your workings with the, the Spotlight programme that might have introduced you first to, to Patrick Ryan. Would that be correct? Yeah, so... I suppose just to kind of go back, I had never heard about Patrick Ryan and his story. And it was only a couple of years ago as part of my job, I was meeting a a source and it was like it was a throwaway remark by that person. And they had said, oh, you know, if you're interested in such and such, you should try um, and speak to Paddy Ryan or Patrick Ryan. And I just wrote it down, like the name Derek, um, in a notebook. It kind of didn't go anywhere for a little while because I was working on other stories. And it was only through a cold call to somebody that eventually culminated in an introduction to Patrick Ryan. I suppose I would stress that he it's not as if he started speaking straight away about his history or what he had done for the IRA. But that's kind of what led up to me to me meeting him in the guts of 2017, 2018. Interesting. It's like you manifested the whole thing just by writing it down on that page. It was then forever more destined to take place. So tell us a little bit about this character. And and I suppose what really interests me about him being a man uh, getting closer to 50 than I am 40, it was at the the point of middle age where um, the Padre decided he was going to move into a more violent job or, or posting at an age when typically you've lost that 
you know, idealistic outlook on life and you're going to, you know, fight for the cause, you're usually at that stage going, what a terrible thing war is. But this was not the case for uh, Patrick Ryan. Yeah, and, and it is the case that the, the character of Patrick Ryan, and it's interesting that you would point that out in terms of if you get to a certain age, would you be as passionate about something, especially that's something that's going to get you possibly, you know, in the line of fire or certainly in danger. But he is one of those characters that whatever he applies himself to, he will carry out with ruthless diligence. So his age was not a factor in terms of his decision making. He just so happened to be back in Ireland in 1969 when what became known as the Troubles began to flare that August. And, And he made that decision that he was going to get involved and his age really didn't have any kind of bearing on his decision making. Do you think then as well it was his age that had you meeting him for him to divulge his side of the story? That I don't know. I do know that sometimes when you meet people for potential interviews, be it on camera or audio only, or even if it's off the record, sometimes you meet people and you meet them a couple of times and there's there's this alchemy that happens in terms of a, a trust that builds up between the two of you. And, you know, I had kind of continued to meet Patrick Ryan, even though he wasn't speaking about what he did as part of the IRA. I just think eventually, um, because he agreed to do the interview on camera for the BBC series, and because for duration purposes, we weren't able to delve into much of his backstory and his life story, you know, I kept speaking to him, albeit the pandemic kind of paused the conversations for a good while. But in the midst of those meetings and conversations, I kind of said to him, look, I really do think that we should try and do a book. And he he went for it. So I, I don't think that he may ever have put his story on the record to the extent that he did if I hadn't continued to meet with him. I don't think that he woke up some morning and thought, well, I'm edging closer to to 90 and maybe it it is time now. I just think that the two of us probably kind of had that inherent relationship in terms of the the number of meetings that we'd had. It's not as if he's looking for redemption or anything because he's still steadfast in his belief that what he was doing was and what he had done just not enough. Several times in different interviews, do you have any regrets? And his quote is, no, only that I didn't do enough. Yeah, exactly, Yvonne, because it's not as if he was trying to correct an historical record about him or put down or kind of revise his feelings or revise his reason for what doing what he did. You know, the man who got involved in 1969 and into the early 1970s and so on, in terms of the beliefs he had then are still the beliefs he holds now. So, um, yeah, there was no reason for him really to 
to try and revise history, if, if you like. The other side of what, what you were saying there, he didn't just wake up one day and decide to do the interview. Uh, he clearly didn't just wake up one morning and decide he was going to join the IRA. What were the conditions, you know, through his childhood into early adulthood that may have predisposed him to uh, getting involved with the movement? And, and that really is key to Patrick Ryan's story. And it's what I also found so interesting because, you know, he was born in 1930 to a small farm in County Tipperary. Mary Ann, his mother, Simon Ryan was his father and he was the second eldest son. And the house he grew up in, in those days, of course, there's <laughs> no entertainment. It is, it's stories or it's, you know, family lore. And his mother in particular was very proud of her involvement in the Irish War of Independence. And she told her children those stories. And it is so interesting because it's her second eldest son, Patrick, who in particular inherits that deep nationalism, um, that deep belief that, uh, that you would do something in terms of an actionable uh, pursuit against your so-called enemy. So it's it's his mother who instilled that deep patriotism and deep nationalism. Now, that was latent, if you like, you know, in his childhood. And bear in mind that he was 14 when he joined the seminary and was 17 years of age when he began his formal training to become a priest and then is ordained in 1954 you know, becomes a missionary priest, you know, that nationalist, Irish nationalist fervour is latent until uh, until the late 1960s. And it just so happens that he's back in Ireland at that time. So his belief in Irish militant nationalism may have never been acted upon had he stayed in East Africa but it is it is so interesting that it's his mother who passes that down to her second eldest son in particular. And, you know, he says it himself. Uh, there's a part in the book in the Padre where he is back in Ireland. He has returned. His mother isn't well and he has returned. And he it just so happens that he was there when she died and he gave her the last rites. And he's obviously one of the priests officiating at her funeral. And as she is being lowered into the grave, he vows to never let his mother down. I mean, that is a profound conscious thought, isn't it? That's huge. You know what I mean? Because like, yeah, obviously. And and like, you know, in, in the book where it talks about the mum being the lookout in the village for the black and tans and her fear and her hatred and then you know, passing that on to him. But it's huge that he stands by the grave and says not to let her down, you know. And being an Irish family, having a son in, in a priesthood, it was close to having a mayor, you know, or, you know, it, it was huge, like, you know. But what I'd love to know is when he, when he talked about his time in East Africa, like, because he seemed to thrive there. He seemed to like do so well and pilot planes and help and like doing everything that a missionary should, you know, what he was doing was amazing work. And to be so proud to be the priest that he was and then moved to London. 
did he did something snap in him at that stage that he went, I'm so happy working as a missionary in East Africa, helping people, helping people live to what what came next? Again, it's a character trait of Patrick Ryan, and the book details this in terms of you know what he was doing in East Africa and the good as you described it, um, in terms of you know drilling for water and building clinics and learning how to fly a plane so he could drop the medicines between the clinics. But it's a character trait of Patrick Ryan in that it's a bishop that he is reporting to uh, that he just doesn't get on with, and. Many, many people would have, you know, we all have people in our lives who we have reported to in some shape or form in a job and you just have to get on with it. But Patrick Ryan is over in East Africa and he's decided, no, I'm not going to put up with this. You know, the bishop at the time wanted also to learn how to fly a plane. And Patrick Ryan describes that this this particular man he wasn't of the same engineering bent that Patrick was, and he was never going to be able to fly a plane to a safe, uh, proficient level. So Patrick Ryan decides, in essence, you know, I'm going to press pause on East Africa for a time and go back to go back to Thurlis, to the Palatine Order from where he was, you know, did his studies and was ordained and see where they might send me to next. And it just so happened that they they sent him to a parish in East London uh, where he was there for a short time. But it, it's that it's that trait within himself that nobody in his life told him what to do. And he made that point in terms of, you know, why he joined the priesthood. It was his own decision. And equally, when he's in East Africa and as he sees it backed into a corner, uh, instead of sticking with it, he is going to form his own path in life and return to Ireland or indeed London for a time and figure out a way that he can get back to East Africa and not have to report to that particular bishop. And since there was no, you know, public local recruiting offices uh, around Belfast and the fact that he was living in London. So how do you join up? And, you know, there's another part of that story as well, that he was rather unique in, in how he did it. He had some conditions, right? Yeah. So in essence, he was working in London for a time in a, in a parish there and his mother was unwell. So he returned to Ireland. And that's why he was back in Ireland in 1969, collecting the the coins, the money that had been tossed into the mission boxes, you know, in shops for the Palatine Order around the country. And it's when the violence begins to break out in parts of Belfast and equally, you know, it's spread to other parts of Northern Ireland. It's that kind of awakens that latent Irish militant nationalism. And Patrick Ryan is somebody who can seek out people. He has already, you know, he's he's based in County Tipperary. He knows um, and he's introduced to a senior IRA commander as part of the Munster, what became the provisional IRA as part of the Munster Brigade. So he he has been introduced to certain people. Um, so he knows who to go to to give them to give the money that he's supposed to be collecting for the missions over to to help uh, Republicans across the border. Now, 
his his superiors can obviously see there's a shortfall in the money. So they do confront him about it, he says. And he says he was quite honest at the time um, in telling them what he was up to and what he why he was doing that and says that they were appalled. And then he decided to walk away from the order, if you like, and the church and gave himself over to the IRA. And Derek, you're right, there were two conditions on which he agreed to become involved full time. He wouldn't, he said, formally join the IRA. And that was quite a canny decision on his part because that left him as a sole trader, if you like, and it left him outside the outside of anybody's control outside of anybody's orders and the other condition on which he would take up the role as being you know being sent over to Libya full time was that if he deemed that the money he was funneling from Gaddafi back to Ireland for the IRA if he deemed that that money was being misused in any way that he would walk away from the republican movement entirely so you know the book details his thinking about that and the meeting that he has with a senior IRA man in Dublin and and puts those cards on the table and I guess it was Joe Cahill who was a senior IRA man uh, from Belfast it was Joe Cahill in 1972 who had decided that Patrick Ryan was the person to be sent to Libya as a full-time fixer slash diplomat slash that kind of role on behalf of the IRA. And if you think about it, it was quite a canny move because, you know, Patrick Ryan spoke five languages at the time. He was very intelligent. You know, he had had that education for years as part of his training for the priesthood. He was charismatic. He was very used to dealing with all different types of people, crucially, he didn't have a personal relationship or a family to entice him or to be yearning for back in Ireland. He could dedicate him. He could dedicate himself fully to the cause of Irish militant republicanism. And that and that's what he did. And and all this while, did he still wear his collar? Was he still a priest? Because I know that when he went further on in later years, it was Father Patrick Ryan for in the posters for election. So did he did he go under the name Father Patrick Ryan throughout his travels? No, he uses, I suppose, and I say this respectfully because it's what he did in terms of, you know, he is he is using the costume of a priest when it suits him. So as you said earlier, Yvonne, to be a priest in the in that time in Ireland from the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, even to the 80s. You know, it literally would open doors. So he knows that on the few occasions when he returns to Ireland, if he wears the priestly garb, like who's going to ask him what he's up to or confront him about what he's doing? But he doesn't wear it when he is traveling in Europe or when he's in Tripoli um, in Libya on behalf of the IRA. He's canny enough to keep it away at that stage. He's crafty and cunning enough to know when he needs to use the the costume of being a priest. And mentioning Libya, 
uh, and the fact you mentioned sole trader as well. He was definitely being a sole trader. He was a really good salesperson, <laughs> clearly very good at, at, at his job at dealing with people. But it's the leader, Muammar, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi in Libya that took a liking to the cause firstly, and then took a liking to the Padre himself. How how did he find himself in front of Colonel Gaddafi? Yeah, it is so interesting because, you know, Muammar Gaddafi's military coup was in 1969. It's almost kind of, well, it is parallel with uh, the outbreak of, of, of the Troubles. And, you know, as the book kind of details, and it has all the history of why he was so wealthy and had all, I mean, obviously it was from the oil, but it kind of contextualizes the geopolitics of, of that time and why Libya in particular was so rich. But Muammar Gaddafi saw the IRA as comrades in arms, if you like, fighting British imperialism. And he wasn't just getting money or, you know, willing to give money to the likes of the IRA. He was also funding other terrorist organizations around the world and and in Europe. So Patrick Ryan is is dispatched in the wake of the Claudia debacle. That was one of the one of the first armed shipments from Libya to the IRA. And he's dispatched after that to go over full time to Tripoli um, to be the, the IRA's emissary, if you like. And it's through his meetings um, with senior Libyan intelligence officers where he is eventually introduced to to Gaddafi and, and sits down and, and meets with him. Now, Patrick Ryan, you know, he says it in the book, he is loath to talk in too much detail about those meetings. You'd almost think that, well, you'd almost think that the whole story is preposterous were it not for the fact that over a decade later, the then British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, confirms to the then Taoiseach, Charles Hawhey, that Patrick Ryan was the main channel of contact between the Libyan regime and the IRA for for well over a decade. So, you know, I make that point because Patrick Ryan is in Tripoli. He's there from the nineteen from the early nineteen seventies onwards, over and back. He bases himself in Europe from where he collects the money in Libyan embassies and sets up Swiss bank accounts and also sets up a, you know, this whole network of sleepers to, to funnel the money back to Ireland. But he he's over and back to, to Tripoli all that time. I made a conscious effort when I was writing the book because of the conversations that I would have had with Patrick Ryan where he is describing the Tripoli of that time. You know, really made an effort to try when you read the book that you're almost there with him because it's such a fascinating time in history, given what Gaddafi was up to. And I mean, I would imagine, you know, that the level of, of spies and all sorts of deals that were being done in Tripoli at that time is is fascinating. And Patrick Ryan is in the middle of it. And for the benefit of our non-Irish uh, listeners, uh, if you could just give a little bit of the backstory about the Claudia and what happened after there was some money laundering going on, but not what you might quite imagine. Yeah, so the, the, the detail of the Claudia operation and who co- compromised it and what 
British intelligence knew about it is all in the book. But in brief, the Claudia operation was, Claudia was the name of the boat, that the, or the ship, I should say, that the, the IRA um, leased to transfer a massive, what they expected to be a massive shipment of arms from Libya to Ireland. And it was compromised and it was seized by the Irish Navy when it entered Irish waters. And it's it's a fascinating story in itself. That's the synopsis, if you like, of the Claudia operation. And then they lost the arms and they yes. lost the suitcase. Yeah, so in the in the mayhem of the Irish Navy closing in on the boat and another smaller vessel that has gone out to take off a senior IRA man from the Claudia who's holding a suitcase of cash who can see that the game is up and he ties a rope to the briefcase and he tosses it into the sea um, off Helvick Harbour off the southwest coast of Ireland and the, that suitcase contains a lot of cash. The detail is in the book, but eventually the IRA managed to retrieve the suitcase and Patrick Ryan in particular is tasked along with another man to literally launder the cash, to, to bring it back to a flat in Cashel, uh, wash the seawater out of the out of the dollar notes, um, dry the money and get it to a point where you can present it either at a bank or you can present it elsewhere and it's not stinking of, of seawater. It's quite a, a crazy, uh, in some ways, humorous story, but the humour is quickly lost when you realise that clearly, you know, the money is for the IRA and uh, the money is being used to to sustain, you know, a campaign of violence in which a lot of people were killed and, and maimed just a, a wild story with 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 terrible consequences. Say, you know, I, did, I did really laugh uh, the whole thing, getting the iron out. I can imagine, you know, definitely a lot of determination and to to fight to fight for the cause then. But I, I presume, obviously, they they needed um, an awful lot uh, of money to keep things going, and they couldn't afford to lose it. But what made me laugh as well was, you know, that's a suitcase in a big, wide open sea. You've got a rough idea where it was, needle in a haystack sort of thing. And what I started thinking about when I was reading it over on holidays in Turkey. Yvonne, I'm doing some scuba diving, I'm coming up and the water was cold and my wedding ring just slips off the uh, the finger into the sea, oh, swiping out at, at, down 20 metres uh, and shiny thing, they couldn't find that. So I really take their, my hats off them for managing to actually retrieve the suitcase in full. So uh, I've since got it replaced. Um, and uh, It's a new one, uh, he didn't go scuba diving. <laughs> That was it. <laughs> There's a most unusual thing that Patrick d- finds on his travels in, in Europe. And these are the, the memo or, or memo park timers that really like you have to have an engineering type of brain to kind of join the dots to kind of ah, oh, we could use this in making bonds. Uh, and he went and bought it all bulk, right? That's right. And again, it kind of goes back to what we started the conversation about in terms of like whatever he applies himself to, he's never not looking for an opportunity. You know, he's in Geneva for the Swiss bank accounts that he has set up. And he knows at that time that 
the IRA face a problem back here uh, because of what they described as own goals where bombs would prematurely detonate, uh, killing or maiming the, the bomb maker or the person who was planting the device. And he spots those little timers uh, small enough to put in your pocket, memo park timers. And he just, he says that he had a hunch that it could solve that problem. And he got a timer, applied himself to re-engineering it so that it could be used as a safety to arm device as part of a, a bomb making unit. He buys the the timers in bulk. He sends his template along with his idea on how to essentially how to make it safer to train bomb makers and how to make it safer to plant bombs. He sends that template back to the IRA. It works. And the memo park timer device and template is becomes a hallmark of IRA bombs from the mid-1970s onwards. You know, they are used in scores of attack. And we know from forensic information that has been put in the public domain that memo park components were found, for example, in the Warren Point attack of 1979, in the Brighton bomb that attempted to, to kill the British Prime Minister and her cabinet, as well as the Canary Wharf bomb, which was in, in the 1990s. I mean, it is it is absolutely incredible that Patrick Ryan, who had no hand in terms of planting the devices or creating the devices back here, but he had a hand in the design and in, you know, there are people who believe that that change kind of transformed the IRA's capacity to to, to wreak havoc um, and to, to cause so much carnage. But yeah, it was, it was from the fact that when he was in Geneva, he spies those memo park timers and he thinks, hmm, I, I can do something with that. It is an incredible part of, of the IRA's history and it's one that I don't think that many people would have been aware of up until now. With, with the Brighton bomb, and I can now maybe I'm putting you on the spot with asking this question because I know this and I can't remember it jigging around in my brain. But how long before the bomb exploded in Brighton did the, the park timer go on for? It 23 was hours. 20 hours. There you go. There you go. <laughs> no, I'm actually guessing. It, but it was, it was the day before no, yeah. it was planted. So it was a good while. No, it's 24 days, yeah. six hours and 36 minutes to detonation. Wow. So now the memo park timer is a component in the bomb. But at that stage, the IRA has has also developed long delay timing devices, which was used in the Brighton bomb. But the, but the memo park component was in there as well. That's how they managed to pull it off, because you know, the, the hotel was being sweeped about a week or two in advance of the arrival of the Conservative Party 
conference. So, you know, that was ingenious in, in, in itself and to time it when everybody was 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 nearly in, in bed and obviously, yeah, obviously had horrific, horrific results. Well, it's just so interesting uh, how all that comes to comes to be. You know, we don't obviously want to go completely into all the book and discuss everything. We want people to go out and buy the book because you're you're part of this generation. I've said it before of you know historians and investigative reporters, and I know you know I, I really. I, I personally value the type of work that you do. It's almost like a dying trade in the sense that there's not enough inve- good investigative uh, reportage. I love your opening part of the, the chapter, Swiss Timers. Immediately I'm drawn into, oh my God, these poor children that lose their lives and the family are torn apart. And then in the next paragraph, I'm reading that it's actually their dad that is building a bomb in the kitchen that detonates, pre-detonates, you know, and it's one of these, and it's like, you know, it's the same when I read the book, Say Nothing, that I'm drawn into this, oh my God, poor families, you know, of the bomb makers like Dolores Price's auntie who lost her sight, hearing hands because she was a bomb maker. And immediately I'm drawn into the fact that I feel sorry for them. And then Father Patrick Ryan coming up with this timer and I'm going, genius, even though part of me wants to absolutely load what he done you know what I mean and and like you know it keeps running around my head the whole time as I'm reading your book this is a priest oh my god I know that we can see priests in different light today you know but still part of me wants to go and I know he's human and part of me wants to sympathize with the the conflict and the trouble and then the other part of me wants to go but he was a priest. What's yeah. your thoughts on that after writing this book? Well, I just wanted to say as well that it was just really important. And I'm really glad that the victim stories kind of stood out to you because it was really important to me to kind of add that context in because it's, you know, it's not told in a romanticized way. It's not a book of daring do. It is it is a portion of, of history that has that context and you're right, because, Yvonne, we still hold certain professions, don't we, to a higher standard. And then in Ireland, there is that history of the Catholic Church and the status that priests had for for generations. And it is such a kind of an interesting, you know, just, just the morality of it all, how somebody who has formally taken vows to adhere to the teachings of the Catholic Church and who's ordained to administer sacraments can be involved in something which ultimately is focused on on violence given its militant Irish nationalism. He he is a he is a complex person. And I think that's kind of reinforced as well, Yvonne, what you said as well about that he doesn't he doesn't hold any remorse for for what he is involved in. But I I really wanted and I have left it up to the readers to form their own opinions and their own judgments um, about Patrick Ryan, because I'm sure you find the same, like when you're doing your podcast and when you're listening to people, I mean, it's like it's a conversation and you don't. If you only ever like listen to stories with judgment, you're only going to be ever be able to tell them in a kind of a judgmental way. And like my job is to is to remain impartial and to apply rigor 
to stories and to contextualize it. But I I will someday kind of maybe discuss kind of what I truly what I truly think of Patrick Ryan. But I really haven't kind of dwelt on that for too long because I've been so focused on the on 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 the story and trying to and trying to get it down. But it is it, it is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, and there's so much history being written now about Northern Ireland. And I'm of that opinion as well. I want the, you know, the the unbiased approach. But if you were to scan back through all the episodes on the historians, it would probably come across to, I suppose, the, the uninitiated or people who, who do, you know, don't understand, I suppose, what's behind what I'm going to say. But it's all very one sided. It's all from the Republican nationalist side. Um, and I have tried and, and just but yet uh, have been unable to interview somebody from the even the the loyalist persuasion for sure i'd really like to do that or even the the unionist persuasion which you know are are more moderate but it seems to be that the only people that are telling their stories are coming from the ira side Uh, and i don't know in your work within northern ireland has it been difficult to get people from the unionist side to to speak about their own experiences uh, no, and I only say that in terms of because you know as part of the the BBC's role in in terms of my full time job, we seek to speak to all 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 people who uh, come from all different backgrounds and and persuasions and had different roles and different views in terms of in terms of the troubles. There is there is a a, a breadth and you know a wide range of of voices. Uh, on that and i i suppose i would like to think um and this is in in a general sense that you know the more stories that are told uh the more people may feel more confident and uh to to come forward with their own with their own stories yeah look hopefully more and more people will do in in the coming while well i mean as as a you know as a place in in ireland i mean without people coming forward and openly discussing how you know bombs affected them or how the their their the way they had to live was affected uh, by by the war up up north we were at risk of finding ourselves with a new younger generation who have only romantic thoughts about the so-called troubles who may think well it's my time now to pick up the gun uh, and and go at it again and i do get the impression in northern ireland there is this simmering just beneath the surface. Uh, and then, you know, without, I suppose, Stormont effectively being able to get up and running and, and govern itself, I think Northern Ireland is in a, on a you know, is, is, is on the edge of something. What do you think? Well, we're kind of getting into the the realm of 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 opinion um, in terms of if I was to kind of get into that answer. So I'll park that one. Uh, for the time being, if that is okay. Oh, that's fine, Jennifer. I know, I know it is. It's so difficult, isn't it? We're just trying to, you know, and I suppose I have at least the freedom. I can say, you know, what nobody's going to, you know, obviously they're going to judge me, whatever I say, but I'd love to, you know, shouting out to any unionists or loyalists out there in uh, the great community of Northern Ireland. If you feel like telling your story, please do. Because I think, I think it's really, I just, I just think it's so important. Um, but I'm also really glad that yourself and, and others are, have taken up the interest in writing about 
about uh, Northern Ireland. And I continue, we just seem to, you're kind of at the the end of a small run of episodes that we're doing uh, on, on Ireland and you're you're fitting in re- really nicely into that. But I suppose we've, we've uh, segued into other topics and conversations. So perhaps to bring it back to our friend, um, Father, Father Patrick Ryan, he remained at large throughout the troubles. And how did he manage to do that? Because the authorities knew about him. Did they take him seriously? He was very, uh, very careful in his movements. And he was based in Europe. So when he, the few occasions that he had to come back to Ireland uh, to meet with the likes of Martin McGuinness and, and other senior IRA people, he took great care to avoid being, you know, to, to you know, he, he took care to, to, to stay under the radar. Yes, when he was in Europe, the uh, police and some in some countries and certainly the intelligence services, uh, certainly the British intelligence services did come to know of Patrick Ryan. And we know that because his story in Europe came to an end in 1988 when he was arrested uh, in Brussels. And the book details what led up to that arrest and why the British intelligence asked their Belgian counterparts to to keep an eye on Patrick Ryan. But in turn, he was actually arrested and detained. Um, and it culminated in him going on hunger strike for a period in a Belgian prison while there was an extradition attempt uh, by Margaret Thatcher's government to extradite him to London. Now, that extradition attempt failed and he was instead repatriated on a Belgian military plane back to Dublin, avoiding British airspace. I mean, that in itself uh, is an incredible feat uh, in, in the context of that time. And then a year later, the Irish authorities turned down a similar request from London again to extradite him from Dublin to, to London. So he never he never faced any court. He never stood accused in, in a court of any of any of the of any of the of the crimes that he was accused of being involved in. Um, and it is it is an incredible story um, of how you know of how he managed to to evade uh to evade justice. Well, we don't want to take up too much more of your time, and there's so much more in the book. So, you know, I really feel uh, we've just given everyone a flavour of what they might be in store for if they go out and, and buy it. And it's really important, again, to support uh, historians in their endeavours of writing books uh, without your efforts in the world might end up in a very, very uh, d- different place. But a mysterious character indeed. And I'm sure, you know, to be honest with you, I think you've said it anyhow, that you still don't know exactly how you feel about the whole thing. And, you know, even from a, a personal opinion point of view, and I'm not going to ask you for it. So that's okay. <laughs> so don't worry. I, complete, I completely understand. Um, what I will say is, though, that somebody did ask me this quite recently. Did I fear that? that writing the book was giving over a story that was seen as so hurtful and caused so much pain to so many people. And, you know, it was a sharp reminder just how much pain and and hurt 
his actions and the actions of the IRA have caused. It is important, and I'm sure, you know, given the the podcast and the conversation that you have, like stories should be recorded irrespective of how difficult they are to so many people because if they're not recorded in some shape or fashion, they'll just never be told. I am mindful of 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 the hurt and of the pain. Uh, but I, I did take care in the telling of the story not to not to be blind to all of that. Northern Ireland, it's not something we'd figure out uh, too easily at all. Um, great people, and you know, I'm not so sure where we'll end up with getting a united Ireland in the, in the near future, or whether it's even even appropriate. To be honest with you, and that's that's my own opinion on it. But Jennifer, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure uh, to to meet the person that I was watching on the telly. I have watched. Uh, I have watched that show more than once, I will say that. Um, I'm really hoping there's more stories to come out of Northern Ireland and hopefully you'll be steering that ship uh, long long into, into the future. Um, but with that, thank you very much, Jennifer O'Leary and everyone go out and buy the book, The Padre. Thanks, Yvonne and Derek, thank you so much. You're so welcome, it was fantastic. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support. We're delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation and we'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact we will be offering a paid subscription tier more on that later and anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here